You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Uh, I'm going to read the sermon passage today before Dan comes up to preach the passage with the inspiration of God. Uh, remember, we started <coughs> this morning reading from Samuel, uh, Psalms 19 that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of the preacher's mouth be pleasing and acceptable to God, our rock and our redeemer. So before I read, let me encourage you, let me pray for all of us, Lord, that that your hearts will indeed be focused on the glory of God that is going to be revealed in his word. Here is the word of God. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They had camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines had camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Lord of the the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us? from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh with the same the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then a man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward 
from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, uh, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the son Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. These are the true words of the living God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Diana, for reading. Hello, my name is Dan, and I am an assistant pastor at Redemption Hill Church. If this is your first time visiting us, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to you. I would, would love to get to know you, and um, many of us are very committed to our community. So please come and say hi, go to the community hub after this. Uh, before we jump into our text, um, let us pray as well. Father Lord, today we want to ask, as Moses did, O oh Lord, please show us your glory. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would open your word to us and also open us to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I recently read of a story about a 23-year-old uh, Thai single woman. And for Primada, the most important, the most weighty thing in her life was to get married. And so when she heard about the Yue Hai Ting Temple in Singapore, who housed the matchmaking deity known as Yue Lao, she decided to make a trip from Thailand to Singapore in 2022 when the borders opened. And so Primada walks to the temple, she gives her earnest prayers for a partner, and two months later, she meets 28-year-old Singaporean man Yang. And after six months of dating, they get married. They tie the knot. So my purpose of sharing this story is not to give dating advice. If you're trying to look for a spouse, uh, do not go to the temple at Philip Street. But what I think this story is so helpful is that it highlights and explains how many of us if not all of us, relate to God in a functional way. What I mean is that we use God. We use God to get what is most important and what is most weighty in our lives. And for Pramada, it was to get married. But maybe for some of us today, it is trying to get a job. And so because you're looking for employment, suddenly in the past few months, you find yourself coming to church every Sunday for the first time in years. Or perhaps what is most weighty, what is most important is a relationship you really treasure. And because that relationship is on the rocks, suddenly your Bible reading has gone up a notch. Suddenly you're praying all the time, hoping, asking that God would listen and act. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the light, seek out the good things that God has given to us. But the problem comes, as we'll see in our text today, when we make a good gift that God has given to us into the ultimate thing, the weightiest thing. Why? Because Scripture makes it abundantly clear that the one person, the one thing that deserves to be in the center of our lives is God and His glory. But what is God's glory? Glory is such a broad term. It means so many things. Well, in our text today in 1 Samuel 4, the author uses the Hebrew word chavod to describe what glory is. And this Hebrew word is the literal meaning of weight. And I think this is helpful to help us understand the theological sense of the word glory. Like how the planets in our solar system revolved around the sun because they are attracted by the magnetic field brought in by the sun's incredible weight. So too must God and His glory be in the center of our lives. And this is the big idea that we see today, that God's glory is important to Him. That if we are His people, we need to give Him the glory in our lives. But glory also has another aspect that's just as important. Remember in Exodus 33:18, Moses is pleading with God and he asks God, Lord, please show me your glory. And how does God respond? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. We see that glory shows us the character of God, who God is. He, God goes on to say, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And so we see God's glory is not just magnificent, luminous, important, but God's glory is also how we get to know Him. And so my working definition for glory this morning is that God's glory is the weighty manifestation of His presence and character made evident to His people. And, and do take note of this because as our passage will show that to us today that God's glory is infinitely important to Him and that we together with all of creation we are made to glorify God. But the problem is that we don't glorify God. We use Him to get what is more weighty in our lives. And so my aim for us this morning is to show us the reasons why we should not use God and why we should glorify God instead under two headings. Judgment will come when we use God, but joy comes when we glorify God. So let's jump in. So last week, Jacob preached um, on the past two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel, and we saw him highlight the contrast between Eli and his worthless sons. We see judgment pronounced on uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and at the same time, we also see the rise and ascent of Samuel. As Dana read for us in our first verse of chapter 4, that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. But as we continue to the rest of chapter 4, 
we find something very interesting: that this central character of Samuel is nowhere to be seen. The, na- the, the narrator seems to intentionally take Samuel out of the picture, and instead focuses on Eli and his two sons. And this is important to take note because our passage, as we have just read, is a passage of judgment. It is a dark, tragic episode in the history of Israel. So, verse one, the, the scene changes. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. We don't know why they fought. We don't know who the aggressor was, but we know that Israel was at battle with the Philistines. And what happens? They fight. And Israel loses 4,000 people in one day. It is tragic. It is humiliating. It forces a regroup. And so the leaders retreat, and they they ask the right question: Why, in verse three, has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And it's such a great question, because the elders have such a healthy view of God's sovereignty. They didn't lose because they didn't have the right equipment. They didn't lose because they adopted the wrong strategy. No, Israel knew that they lost because God allowed them to be defeated. But tragically, even though they asked the right question, they arrived a bit too hastily to the wrong answer. What else did they say in the second part of verse three? Let us bring the ark of The covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The leaders were busy. They had assumed that because they had the right theology, they had the right identity, and they, that they were doing the right activity of fighting God's enemies, that whatever they wanted was simply what God wanted. They had just assumed. But in a time of crisis, they did not seek out Eli the priest. They did not seek out Samuel, whom we read that God was speaking through. Instead, they simply decided to act as quickly as they could to respond to this national crisis, and they decided to take the ark out. And friends, we must ask ourselves: Are we so busy thinking that we believe the right things, that we come and we serve in church? That when a crisis arises, that we we know what God needs, what God wants, that we do not spend the time to seek God. Who God is is far more important than what God wants us to do. And we see here that the crisis, the weight of national security, far outweighed the glory that. The elders should have given to God not just in how they handled the ark, but the lack of engagement with God Himself. At this juncture, we need to spend some time to understand what the ark was and why it mattered. Physically, the ark was a gold-covered portable box that normally sat in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was a tent. That Israel would set up whenever God wanted to speak to His people, and if you can see right at the, the top left corner, there's a box there behind the curtain. This was the ark, and it sat in the holy of holies. Once a year, 
only the high priest could go in to converse with, with God. But more than that, the ark also represented God's revelation, reconciliation, and rulership. Copies of the Ten Commandments were kept within the ark to mark its, God's revelation to his people. Reconciliation, do you see the two um, angel-like creatures on top as the lid? That is called the mercy seat. God is holy, but he wanted to have this imagery to show his heart to his people. That there was a relationship of mercy. And number three, rulership. When the ark wasn't sitting in the tabernacle, God would command his people to go out to battle and carry the ark. One of the most famous episodes of this was in Joshua, when they were about to conquer Jericho. And what they got tell Joshua and the leaders, bring out the ark for I'll be with you. And so when the enemy saw the ark of God, and when the Israelites carried the ark into battle, everyone believed that God's rulership, his presence was going before his people to fight on behalf of his people. But what was wrong again with the response to the national crisis? On one hand, the Israelites' leaders acted hastily, but two, they treated the manifest presence of God represented in the ark as a tool. They said, let us go to Shiloh, let us bring it out so that the ark, not God, will come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The Israelites were so blinded by the threat of losing to the Philistines that they used God to secure victory and did not glorify him. And we need to ask ourselves, do we do the same? Does the opinion of your boss carry the most weight in your life? That when evaluation season comes, you start reading your Bible more, you start coming to church, hoping that God would grant you favor does the praise of your colleagues and friends carry the most weight in your life? That the reason why you serve in church and give so much money <laughs> is so that they will look at you positively saying that, yes, that is a good Christian man or woman. Or does the weight of the approval from your parents carry the most weight in your life? That you're afraid to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus because it will cost you their approval it will cost you their affirmation. Yes, how the Israelites acted was bad, but what was more concerning was their hard posture towards God. They saw God, his ark, as a tool to get what they really wanted. What gave them significance, security, and safety in their lives. They did not worship God, they did not glorify God. They used God. You know, John Piper has a really helpful illustration, which I'll adapt, to describe our relationship with glory. You know, we often relate to the good things in our lives, um, our relationships, our finances, our health, with a microscope. What does a microscope do? It makes something that is small or normal size big, huge, it magnifies it. And so when we make these good things into ultimate things, 
we use a magnifying glass and they carry an inordinate amount of weight and importance in our lives. But instead, we should treat God's glory with a telescope. What does a telescope do? None of us has seen the sun in its entirety. But with a telescope, you can make something that is objectively weighty, big, majestic, close and near. And the danger is when we walk around with a microscope, looking at the good things of our lives with that lens, is that we live distorted lives. We put our faith, we sacrifice other things in the hope that that good thing will save us. But the opinions of people will change. Institutions will rise and fall. And ultimately, when we do not give God the glory, but we give the glory to other things, not only do we live distorted lives, but we live anxious lives. We, leave, we live discouraged, depressed lives because these things were not meant to save us in the first place. That's the danger. That's why God is so firm about us glorifying Him because He is the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings. But not just that. Apart from the effect on us, God cares about His glory. And when His people do not glorify Him, but they use Him, judgment comes. And so we go on to see our narrative in verse 4. The people bring the ark into battle, and they are full of confidence. There is a great shout, so much so that the, the earth shakes. And the Philistines hear that, and they ask, what's going on? Why is this uh, great shouting coming from the camp of the Hebrews? And in verse 5, they learn that the ark of the Lord had come into camp. And the Philistines are afraid. They exclaim two times, Woe to us! Woe to us! Nothing like this has happened to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They had heard, they had heard stories of how Yahweh had delivered his people from the Exodus, how he was faithful to lead them through the wilderness. And the Philistines are undone, devastated, no confidence. And there are only two outcomes to this situation. Either the Philistines surrender and become slaves to the Hebrew, or as we see, they, they say in verse 9, that they be men and fight. And what do they do? They fight. And in verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And Israel fled every man to his home. This term, every man to his home, describes how bad the defeat was that soldiers left military service altogether. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The first battle, 4,000 people died. The second, 30,000 people died on one day. Verse 11, and the ark was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Now, don't you find it interesting that in our narrative, we have seen 34,000 people die, but yet only the names of two people are mentioned, Hophni and Phinehas. Why? I think it's because the author is highlighting that God is faithful 
to do what he says. That again, remember, this is a passage of God's judgment. And this is the culmination of what God had told Eli in the previous chapters. Remember, Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2 wanted to stop his sons. He said in, in verse 25, if someone sins against a, a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But Eli and Hophni would not listen. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 1 Samuel 2, 34. The man of God comes to Eli and pronounces judgment. And that this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. So this is the sign now we see in chapter 4, that both of them shall die on the same day. Friends, at LHC, we love the gospel. We love talking about how much grace and mercy God has given to us, and that is true. But if you are struggling with your sin this morning, if you have been convicted by God's spirit, his word, or even brothers and sisters who have come to you to ask you to stop, but yet you persist in your sin. No one likes to hear this, but the scriptures show us that there will be a day where God will judge his, the sin in your life. And I want to encourage any of us who are struggling with this sin, would you please hear these words from scripture? that God doesn't want you to remain trapped in your sin. He doesn't want you to go on living in this way. Jesus died on the cross so that you will be free from the penalty of sin. He doesn't want you to live this way. And so please heed these words of warning that there will be judgment for sin, not just for God's glory, but because he loves you so much that he wants you and I to live in freedom, to have life abundant in him. And if you need someone to talk to, someone to pray with, please come to the front after service and speak to one of our leaders. We want to journey with you because it is not God's will for your life and mine to persist in our sin. But on the flip side, isn't this episode a way that we use the telescope to see God's glory? What is God's glory? Do you want to see God's glory? Isn't this an, uh, a scene that highlights God's glory? It shows us that God is sovereign, that not only does he hold the outcome of battles in his hands, he holds the destiny of all our lives. He chooses when we live and when we die. Isn't he glorious? He is just that even though Eli knew that his sons were desecrating the temple sacrifices, that they were sleeping with the women who worked at the temple, Eli did not stop his sons, but God did. He put a stop to the spiritual abuses. Isn't he glorious? And not just that, God is trustworthy. Our Bible is full of God's promises, and why they are so precious is that if God has said it to us, he will do it. He is faithful to fulfill every promise that he has given to us. This is a God who is glorious. Everything else, everyone else will disappoint us. They will fail us because no one is like our God. No one is just fully. 
No one is sovereign. No one is as faithful as our God. Would you consider giving God the weight that He deserves in your life because He is glorious? We continue the act of God's judgment in the next scene in 1 Samuel 4, 12. So it's a really bad day in the life of Israel. Um, a man of ben- Benjamin runs from the battle line and gives news to the city of Shiloh. And we see Eli. He finally enters into the scene and he is trembling because he is anxious about the ark of God and what has happened to it. And so when, when the man tells the news to the city, the whole city goes into an uproar. Remember in our first scene, the Israelites shout out in confidence. Now they shout out in lament. Why? Because Israel had lost the battle. And so Eli hears the outcry and says, what is that sound? So the man comes to Eli and he gives news to what happened in the battleground. And he tells Eli three things. Number one, in in verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there was a great defeat. Number two, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And number three, and the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as this man mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. It is a dark, dark day in Israel's history. Not just because they lost the battle, but now Eli, the priest, and his sons, the priesthood is eliminated. Again, don't you think it's strange (laughs) that in such a heavy moment that the author makes the effort to highlight that Eli was heavy. I mean, the poor guy dies in such a terrible way. He's sitting on his chair, he falls backwards, and because he is so heavy, his neck buckles under the weight. Why make this distinction? Why make this observation? I think it's because the word heavy is the Hebrew word chavot which is the same word used to describe God's glory. And with wordplay here, the author is trying to show us that Eli had used God. He had profited from his position in his life as priest and literally took God's glory, his chavot, and aided so much so that he became chavot. He became heavy. And this is judgment. This is poetic judgment. That if God's leaders do not glorify him, but use him and exploit others under their charge, God will judge. Our last scene in verse 19, now Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. So imagine she's, she's quite big and about to give birth. And she hears of the, the three things again that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. And when she hears the news, she gives birth, bows down, and dies. 
just before she passes away, she names her son Ichabod. And she laments in verse 21, saying, The glory, the Chavod, has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And 22, she laments the same thing. The glory has departed from Israel and the ark of God has been captured. And it's such a sad scene. As the curtain closes, we hear her lament. The glory of God has departed. The glory of God has departed for the ark has been captured. And this is the first time in Israel history where the ark was captured from Israel. We should not use God because when we use God, instead of glorifying Him, judgment comes. So if this is the negative way we relate to God and His glory, what is the positive way? What, what should we do? Which brings us to my second point. Joy comes when we glorify God. You know, the name of Eli's grandson is Ichabod, which literally means, where is glory? Where is glory? And if I were to ask you today, where is glory? Where is the glory of God? How would you answer some 1,000 years after this tragic account, John, the apostle, wrote these words in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the verb here, dwelt, is translated from the Greek word skenao, which means tabernacle. The tabernacle which housed the ark of the covenant, the physical manifestation of God's glory. And so we can translate this verse, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, doxa, the same word as chavot. Glory as of the only son from the father. And who, what is this son like? What is, it, what is his character? Full of grace and truth. What John is doing here for us is that He's throwing away the telescope. What was far, what was majestic, what he needed to use to bring this glory near and present, now he said that the glory has come and he has tabernacled with us. And we have seen this glory, glory in the Son of God. He, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 makes the same point. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom also he created the world. And don't miss this in, in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Where is God's glory? God's glory is Jesus, full of truth, full of grace, full of mercy for you and me, full of patience, full of long-suffering. But for us to fully appreciate glory, we can't just stop at who Jesus is. We must go further to see what he did. In John 17, this is the last prayer 
that he prays before he goes to the cross. And, and Jesus is getting ready for the culmination of his life. He's about to climb upon his Everest. And when we look at the cross, don't we see the greatest humiliation, the greatest embarrassment of God's mission? I mean, Jesus, you said you wanted to come to save us from our sins. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to get flogged. You're going to be stripped naked. And you're going to hang on this cross. But how does Jesus see this as he makes his way to the cross? In verse 1 of John 17, he prays, Father, the hour has come. So much in the Gospel of John, he keeps saying, my, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. But now, the hour has come. And he goes on to say, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Jesus doesn't see the cross as the point of greatest humiliation. He sees the cross as the point of greatest glory. This is what it looks like to glorify God. Jesus did not ever seek the praises of man. He did not ever do what was popular. You know, it was his decision to stand up against the religious leaders when they stepped out of line, which immediately led to his death. It was his decision to speak and teach in parables when his public ministry got too large. It was his decision to veto what his disciples wanted, to go to Jerusalem so that he could die. Jesus did not live for the praises of men. He lived only to glorify God. He shows us what it's like to live in this upside-down kingdom. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And in verse 2, we see why he does that. For God has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And what is eternal life? Is that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We see not just what Jesus will do, but who he is. This is eternal life. That we glorify God, that we seek after his glory, that we perceive the glory of God so much so that it will change our lives. Like Isaiah did in the temple, when God's glory filled the cause of the, the, the entire temple, his life was transformed. And this is the good news of Christianity, that every religion will tell you what you need to do to get to God. But only Christianity says, this is what God did to come to you. And it's glorious. We see in, in our passage that God's glory came in judgment over Eli and his sons in Israel. But on the cross, we see the same glory come in judgment. Not on your sin and mine. Not in how we use God and not glorify him. But his judgment came on his son. The one person in human history who lived his life to glorify God, even at the cost of his own and on the cross, we see the glory of God. God's goodness did not pass us by, but it was poured out across all who would put their faith in this Jesus, so much so that they, could, they will receive grace from God and mercy from God. This is the gospel. 
that we are far more sinful than we could ever hope, than we could ever imagine. But we are far more loved and accepted than we could ever hope for. And all this is possible only because God judged His Son for our sin. If you are not a Christian this morning, can I ask you to consider this good news of the gospel? That as you seek after things to give you your ultimate sense of security, significance, what you're really looking for is God. (laughs) Because everything else will not satisfy. God shows us on the cross not just who he is, but what he has done to bring you back to him. But if you are a Christian, you've probably heard the gospel hundreds and thousands of lives. And if you're like me, your heart can still be unmoved. We can hear these things and still use God. And why is that? I believe that there are two reasons. First, we often see that the battle for glory is fought against two main parties either glory for God or glory for men. And we see this playing out in both Eli's and Jesus' life. Remember in 1 Samuel 2.29, when the man of God comes to condemn Eli, what does God say in verse 29? Why then do you, Eli, scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people, Israel. You know, Jacob last week spoke about the passivity of Eli. And I think this sin of passivity sometimes is tied to Eli's need to find approval from his sons and maybe even other people. Don't you think it was strange that when Israel decided to bring the ark into battle, Eli wasn't in the picture. And when the people went to Shiloh to get the temple, Eli didn't stop them. And when the man runs back into the city, Eli is trembling because he's worried about the ark. Jesus as well talks about this same sin of not seeking the praises of man above the praises of God as we see in the Sermon on the Mount. It is why when he calls his disciples to pray, to fast, to give to the poor, he says, do it in secret. Don't do it like the hypocrites who pray outside the synagogues so that they may be seen and be celebrated. But go into the closet, close the door, and pray in secret so that your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. The praises of God over the praises of men. It is also why in in John 12, when um, he sees that many among the religious authorities wanted to believe in Jesus, but they didn't because they feared, they, because they desired the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God. And I think one of the reasons why we still struggle with this is that we love, we depend on the praises of men, the glory for men, to give us our ultimate sense of significance and security. The second reason, I think, it's because we, unlike John, have, we have not seen God's glory. You know, C.S. Lewis has this really helpful um, illustration. He talks about how our desires 
are not too strong, but they are too weak. We are far too easily satisfied with the earthly pleasures of money, of ambition, of drink and sex, so that when infinite joy is offered to us, knowing Jesus, we cannot comprehend it. We would much rather make mud pies in the slums than be invited into a holiday by the sea. And this is really the work of Christian life on earth. We have the word. We have seen the historical evidence of Jesus. But isn't the battle every day is to say, yes, Lord, I believe in your word and I choose to deny myself and to glorify you. We need to grow in our perception. We need to ask that God will show us his glory. Because we are people driven by our desires and all our desires find their culmination and satisfaction in God and his glory. So how does the gospel help us to do this? The gospel enables us to glorify God because we find joy in him. Later on in John 17, Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, but now I am coming to you, God the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they, these are the disciples and us, they may have my joy fulfilled in them. This joy is not something that we can find on this earth. This joy is not something that we can earn on our own. This joy is given to us from Jesus. But what is this joy? Again, I find Lewis really helpful. And he dis, uh, describes, defines this joy in his book, Surprised by Joy. Joy, he says, has w- one characteristic and one only which is common in them. And, and what he means is that whoever has tasted this joy will want more of it. And this joy is different from earthly pleasures. For the person who has tasted this joy will give up all pleasures of the earth to get more of what this joy offers. He goes on to write in a different part that the overriding quality or benefit of joy is not the joy itself, the appetite, but what or who the joy, the joy points to. What Lewis is doing is giving us a different perspective to what Jesus said, says in John 17, as we have read. That when we have tasted this joy that Jesus gives, we cannot help but glorify him. You see, the gospel doesn't give us what we need, earthly pleasures, security in the here and now, in our finances and relationships, in our health, but it gives us what we need. It gives us God. The manifest presence made near to us, Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. And the Christian life is living our entire lives like Jesus glorifying him, seeking not our own agenda, but seeking his kingdom, his will, because of what he has done for us. This is the gospel. This is what it means to glorify God, to perceive his glory more clearly. And as I close, I think someone I met really helped me to understand this in a deeper way. You know, in a previous life, I used to uh, serve at a homeless shelter where I would preach every uh, two weeks. 
And you know, you, you go into the homeless shelter, you really don't know who's gonna be there. There are guys who are dozing off, people coming in midway, um, other people trying to ask you questions as you're preaching. And um, I remember meeting Tony. He was a dear 66-year-old African-American who, um, like my brother uh, Byron, uh, sometimes when I preach, he would say, Amen, brother. Come on now. And uh, he said that, you know, Dan, every time you come, you bring like the fire with you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But um, I was deeply encouraged. And what I loved about serving at the shelter uh, was that I got to share a meal with, with the, the men there. And I would spend time with Tony during those early days that he came. And as I got to know Tony, I learned that he was 66 years old. He had just joined the... Um, sheltered three months prior, and he had broken his arm. He wasn't on good speaking terms with his four children. But yet, as I spoke to him, I couldn't help but sense this joy. You know, I, I came into the shelter thinking that I needed to encourage the guys. But as I spent time with Tony, I found that Tony was encouraging me. Why? Because Tony had nothing in this world but yet he had everything in Christ. And I think that is a small glimpse of what it can look like for you and I to glorify God and not use him. Can we pray? Lord, we thank you for Jesus who has come to show us your glory. Help us, O Lord, to hunger after this joy that comes from your glory, to not serve and seek after lesser things, but to give you the glory because you are God and you have done everything, Lord, to bring us back to you and to give us eternal life in the here and now, knowing you and walking with you. Help us in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.